Let's continue on our series uh, here. Uh, let me tell you uh, a true story, um, the, the, the amazing, inspiring story of Nelson Mandela. Uh, as you probably know, Nelson Mandela was involved in um, really standing against apartheid in South Africa. And as a, a young lawyer, he became very um, envisioned about fighting for racial justice uh, and racial equality in South Africa. Um, but his efforts and his work were really responded with very aggressively by the government. Uh, he was reprimanded and uh, strong reprisal against him in his efforts. And um, he was called an agitator, called a terrorist. Uh, he was imprisoned, uh, not, not just once, but multiple times. And uh, his, the most notorious imprisonment that he received was in, uh, so uh, this was in 1964, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. And the whole world watched as an absolute champion of justice was wrongfully imprisoned for his political beliefs and for his work, uh, imprisoned in a very small cell on Rotten Island. But despite his incarceration, despite the terrible conditions, it was a very small cell, despite all of that, Nelson Mandela never lost his vision, never lost his love for his nation, and never lost his faith in God. He became a beacon of hope. People would chant his name at rallies, and they would write his words and his quotations on placards and signs and display them. But as he aged behind bars, the tension outside grew worse and worse over the years. He ended up being imprisoned for 27 years for his beliefs, for what he wanted to see happen in South Africa. The whole world watched as the political climate there began to change. Political power began to shift, and by everyone's surprise, Nelson Mandela was actually released from his imprisonment. And this was a, this echoed around the world. This was monumental news uh, that he would be released. Even given his newfound freedom, the greatest question remained, how would such a divided nation be reconciled and find unity? as Nelson Mandela, Mandela began to continue his political crusade that he had been on. Let me pause his story there, and I'm going to get back to the conclusion of it at the end of the sermon. His story ties into our passage today. So we're in week three of our series, um, The Real Jesus, and today we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And uh, what we're doing is we're journeying through the life and ministry of Jesus, looking at the person and work of Jesus. And we have to, um, we have to turn to the Jesus of Scripture. We've got, we've got to get rid of the cartoony versions in our minds of Jesus because the, the real Jesus is the Jesus that we find on the pages of the Bible. He's the only one that can set us free, that can heal our pain and mend our broken world. Let's pray and then let's read. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the life you lived. And we pray that today you would teach us about who you are and what you came to do, and that you would illuminate our hearts, 
cause us to trust you all the more. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray they'd meet the real Jesus today and come all the way in. And Lord, for those of us who already believe, God, just deepen our relationship with you. Deepen it in the most profound way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, continuing on from last week. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This is God's Word. This moment is not just a monumental moment, not just a significant moment or a defining moment in the life of Jesus, but it's a defining moment in the history of God's people, the nation of Israel, throughout the Bible. Uh, the gospel writer Mark, he doesn't um, get into some of the other things that some of the other gospel writers uh, get into. He doesn't talk about Jesus' birth, skips that, doesn't talk about Jesus' family tree, where did Jesus come from, doesn't talk about that, doesn't talk about the fact that John the baptizer is Jesus' cousin, doesn't mention any of that, doesn't mention the, the, where are the shepherds, there's no shepherds, where are the wise men, doesn't mention those guys. Um, the fact that Herod tried to have Jesus killed, doesn't mention that. The, the really cool prequel moment where Jesus is in the temple schooling all of the scholars uh, with, his, with his wicked Bible knowledge. Uh, Mark doesn't mention any of this. Mark is interested in the facts he, uh, he's a facts kind of guy, straight to the point, doesn't want any of the fluff. There's no baby Jesus in the manger. He gets straight to... So what we see is by verse 9, just nine short verses, we're already at the baptism of Jesus. Mark wants to get straight to, very quickly, get straight to the baptism of Jesus. It is such a significant event in Jesus' life, but also for the whole nation of Israel. Even when the disciples when they wanted to, to, to replace Judas, Judas was one of Jesus' disciples who had betrayed him, they said, well, we've got to get someone to replace Judas. And one of the qualifications was, we need to find somebody who has been with us since the baptism of Jesus. That's what we're told in Scripture. We've got to find somebody who was there at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. That's how significant in their minds the baptism of Jesus was. And we're going to get into the significance of it. One of the big things, one of the big reasons that Jesus was baptized was as an example for us. Now, this is very curious because we get baptized because we're sinful, because we need to be washed. We need to go into the, the watery grave and as a symbol of our sin being washed away by the sacrifice of Jesus and being resurrected. We're buried with Christ, right? And then as we come out of the water, we're resurrected with Christ. We've got life in Christ. Like, that's the, way, the reason we do it. But Jesus did not sin. Jesus kept it 100. Perfect. And so a big reason he did it is as an example for us to follow. And so when we're baptized, we are declaring our unity, our joint identity, that we, are, we now belong to Jesus when we are baptized. And so... And the, 
Bible tells us if we believe in Jesus, we're to be baptized. So if you haven't been baptized yet and you believe in Jesus, you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have read through the Bible. You don't have to have all the answers. But if, you, if you're like, if the, the deepest part of your heart, you're like, I, I, deep down, I know, I know it's Jesus. If that's you, you need to get baptized. You need to take that step. And we're given specifics about it. It tells us in the passage we just read that Jesus came up out of the water. You can't come up out of the water unless you first go into the water. That's what baptism is. It's immersion. It's being submerged. It's being plunged into, plunged into the baptism waters. And then you come out a new creation, a symbol of the work of Jesus in our lives. And so if you want to take that step, go ahead, please tell us. On the back of that Connect card, there's actually an option there that says, be baptized in water. Take that step. Don't wait any longer. We've got, we're planning some baptisms here coming up soon. Take that step. Follow the example of Jesus. But of course, there's something even more significant happening here. In this moment at Jesus' baptism, we see the three people of God. We see the Son, God the Son, obeying. We see God the Spirit empowering, and we see God the Father speaking. The name and the word Trinity doesn't exist in the pages of the Bible. It was a a name, a description, a word that Christians developed, they came up with, to describe what is very clearly portrayed to us in the Bible, in the pages of Scripture. We've got to understand, this is the first moment that the true nature of God was revealed to the earth, was revealed to the human race. Before this, we knew a lot about God. Yet there is one God. We knew that. We believe in one God. God is one. We, we, of course, we believe that. But now we've learned something mysterious, that there is, God is a community of persons, that there is divine love and divine fellowship shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The famous author, C.S. Lewis, he describes the Trinity as like a dance. We actually have this quote from C.S. Lewis here. He says, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of dance. And I'll I'll translate that for you. I'm saying the word dance. I'm bilingual, if you didn't know. <laughs> the three people of God, the Trinity, this, this divine community, this mystery of how you can have three people as one, this triunity, they, one of the significant things we learn about them is that they glorify each other. They point to each other to glorify the other persons within the nature of God. And this is a, a beautiful, wonderful idea about the nature of God, because a lot of people look at the Christian faith or look at like the idea of a one big giant initial original creator of all things, and they say they don't like, it. that kind of God sounds like a, an egomaniac who just wants to glorify himself all the time. It's kind of insecure, needs your worship, needs your reassurance all the time. This is one of the things that the world thinks about and that sometimes Christians struggle with as well. But when you understand the nature of the Trinity, it totally transforms your idea that God is not an, an egomaniac just a self-aggrandizing, like, I deserve all the praise and glory. In fact, it's the real opposite of that. You have a triunity. You have persons within the Godhead, within the nature of God, who point to each other. 
So God the Father has magnified and glorified God the Son to receive all praise and all worship. The Father's raising up his Son, pointing to his Son, saying, worship him, worship him. And what did Jesus talk about when, in his ministry? He said, I do everything that the Father says. I glorify the Father. The Holy Spirit does the same thing. They're pointing to each other. That means God is infinitely giving, because he is infinitely giving glory within himself to the other persons within himself, God is infinitely happy. He is infinitely joyful. Because you know what misery is, right? Misery is people constantly taking selfies of themselves and posting them online. The self-aggrandizing nature of uh, our day and age is bound up in, I glorify myself. The more you, a person, I mean, you know it's ugly, right? You feel it yourself. The more you glorify yourself, you just feel gross. You're just like, what am I doing? And the more you see other people doing it, you're just like, oh, it's disgusting. It's something gross about it. That's misery. That's not happiness. But the truest expression of happiness and joy is a God who glorifies the other persons within himself. This makes Christianity different from all other systems of belief, all other gods that you might think about believing in. It makes true reality, it makes ultimate reality a dance. It means that love relationships are important for the very purpose of life. They flow from the very nature within God himself. If God was just unipersonal, he wasn't a tri-unity, he's just an uno-unity, which doesn't make sense, right? He's just an uno. Just <laughs> stick with me here. If God was just one, he'd be powerful, but he wouldn't be love. He wouldn't be love. But because God is love, because he is complete, pure, selfless love, that is the origin of what it means to truly care about others. The interior of God's existence is a glorification and an exaltation and a celebration of the other. God made us to join in his dance. God made us to join in the fellowship with him, to know him, to, to be found in relationship in this dynamic pulsating life that he has with him. Because if you just consider love to be a chemical reaction in your brain, that means you never truly love and you are never truly loved. Because you only love and you, all, you only receive love because the other person feels good about it. They get a chemical reaction. But in God, you have true, honest, selfless expression of submission and love towards each other in this triunity, this community. And we're invited to dance with God. We're invited into this wonderful intimacy, this wonderful relationship with God. So the fact that this is revealed, that this triunity is revealed at Jesus' baptism speaks volumes to us. It tells us something incredible. Jesus' baptism, it's not just an example to us. It's his inauguration event. England just had a coronation of a king. I didn't watch it, but I heard it was interesting. People love the pomp and the ceremony. 
People need a figurehead. They need, they need a king to believe in. They need something to follow. That's the human heart. And the message of Jesus is Jesus has come as that king, that, that person. And uh, the, Jesus' baptism is his inauguration event as the new king of the kingdom of God. So just like in the old scriptures in the Old Testament where King David, for example, was anointed by the prophet Samuel, he was anointed to be the future king. Or like in the, in the time period, if you know your Old Testament, the time period of the judges, when the prophets would pick out a judge and the Spirit of God would come on them and they'd be, they're being inaugurated. They're being chosen, selected to rule. Jesus is being chosen to rule God's people and God's kingdom has come to start this work. All the leaders before him had failed. Adam, the first ruler that God made, the first person that God put on the earth to rule, to be in charge of stuff, big fail. I mean, that's why everything's messed up. Yeah. Um, Abraham, the man of faith. Hey, he can be commended for his faith, great faith, Ended up being a bit of a liar, though. Failed. Moses, the, the, the redeemer of, of the Hebrews, right? Amazing guy, could be commended in many regards. No prophet like him, but even he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. He failed God, and that was the consequence. What about David, King David? I mean, we love David, don't we? Everyone loves, everyone's got a little bit of a soft spot for David. Yeah, adulterer, murderer, Big failure. Solomon, his son, became king. This is another example why monarchies are not a good idea. Uh, no one wiser than, uh, the only other, only other person in the Bible wiser than Solomon is Jesus. Brought great prosperity to the nation. Married one too many concubine, you know, just his heart drifted away. Yeah, that was an understatement. His heart drifted away. They started worshiping false gods again. I mean, fail, big, big fail. In the baptism of Jesus, we see three things stand out that show us that Jesus has been chosen by the Father to fulfill this position, to be this king, to be in this role. And we're going to see that Jesus is the king that doesn't fail. The first one, the first thing we see is we see the heavens opened up. The heavens opened up. This was anticipated. Uh, I think it's Isaiah uh, 64, verse 1. This is a, a prophecy from Isaiah. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That word rend there, so, so scribes and people that would study the Old Testament, they knew that certain parts of the old scriptures were messianic in nature, that meaning they're looking for a future king, a messiah, a future savior. They're messianic. They're, they're, they're looking, predicting for, for a true one that would come, that would sit on the throne of David and would bring salvation to all of God's people, that would truly free them. And so Isaiah prophesies this, rend the heavens. At the, put that verse back up again for me again. Let's read that again. Stick to one verse one. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So this is the idea that Messiah, the king, the scribes that are studying the scriptures, they, they know this is, this is messianic. This is talking about this future king, future leader who's going to come. To rend the heavens, that word rend means to tear. 
tear open the heavens. This person's going to come from heaven. They didn't put together, that's a giant clue that the Messiah is not just a person, but is a divine person. Not just a human person, but somebody from, actually from heaven. Rend the heavens, tear the heavens open. This is what's predicted from, from Isaiah. And that was pointing back, to, to tear the heavens open was actually an image pointing back to, and we talked about this last week, the Red Sea incident, God's people fleeing from Pharaoh, they're trapped at the Red Sea, Pharaoh's right on their hills. God tears open, it's the same phrase, God tears open the sea, pulls it apart. They receive their salvation and the enemy is destroyed as a result. And then the gospel writer Mark, he wants to get to, man, he wants to get to the baptism as quick as he can. He wants to get there right away because it's so important. The only other time he uses the word that the, the, the heavens are torn apart, the only time he uses the word torn is at the end of his gospel. This is another Mark sandwich. We talked about this last week because we understand that sandwiches are at the center of the meaning of the universe. You're, everybody knows this, right? All good food is basically just a variation of a sandwich. Right? Am I, I'm not hearing the amens. Where are the amens? You guys need to read the Bible more. I don't know. I failed as a leader. This is another literary sandwich where Mark... He, he does this with different stories. He does it in small ways, but he does it in giant ways as well with his whole gospel. At the end, so at the beginning, the heavens are torn apart. At the end of the gospel, what do we see? We see Jesus on the cross. And as he dies, the curtain is torn apart. He uses that word only twice and for those two instances. It's a giant, brilliant sandwich to tell you that the, he- the, the, the kingdom of heaven, the, the kingdom of God is tearing into our fallen reality and is coming now through the person of Jesus, and Jesus is the bridge. Jesus is the bridge. How did Jesus teach us to pray? One of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The heavens are being torn open. This is what the ministry of Jesus is. It is at his inaugurational baptism event where he is being anointed as king, the heavens are being torn apart. The kingdom is coming. Now, not to be confused, you've got to understand the kingdom of Jesus comes in stages. So his earthly ministry was to bring spiritual salvation for us. That work was finished on the cross. So you, you can be assured you're a thousand percent forgiven, a thousand percent set free. It is a completed work. It is incredible. That is the great, greatest reason to rejoice. God unconditionally loves me and accepts me in Jesus because of that, because he tore the heavens open. That has come. But we live in what's called the overlap of the ages. It's always important to talk about this because if you overemphasize the future kingdom of heaven, then you're disappointed when everyone's not healed when you pray for them or tragedies happen or things happen. You're disappointed because you think, I, I thought God was on my side. I thought that all these things were supposed to happen this way. You, you don't realize, well, the kingdom of heaven hasn't fully come. We still live in the kingdom of this fallen reality. There's an overlap of the ages and we're in that, that gap. So even in the New Testament, you see, yes, some of the followers of Jesus, especially in the book of Acts, they were imprisoned, but then they were set free. God, the new kingdom has come. Wow, power, they're set free. Others martyred for their faith. Others died. You see both happening. The heavens torn apart, the kingdom coming and the new king being chosen, being crowned at Jesus' baptism. The second thing we see happening here is we see the Spirit descending on Jesus. The Spirit descends on 
Jesus. And this again, the scribes and those who look at the old scriptures, they, they were anticipating this. They, they knew that something like this was going to happen. They were looking for something like this. So I think it's Isaiah 42, verse 1, says, Behold my servant, so this is actually talking about Jesus. They didn't know that, but it's talking about Jesus, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's that kingly rule there. Jesus is going to bring justice. He's going to, he's going to right all wrongs. He's going to give recompense, a consequence for all the evil that's been done. That's what true biblical justice is. But he's going to have, the Spirit is going to be poured out upon him. When Jesus comes up out of the water and the Spirit descends on him, this is an image, a moment of what it shows us to really walk into God's calling on your life, that when God calls you to do something, he empowers you with what you need to get that done. Jesus is being fully equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit to do all the works of God. We can't forget there is a supernatural work of the Spirit. We talked about it recently in our series of Things of the Spirit. There is a baptism of power to do the supernatural works of God. Acts 10 makes this very clear. Acts 10, 38 and God anointed Jesus. That's that anointing. God anointed Jesus, chosen as king. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. When we get filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, when we're, there's a baptism of salvation... Hey, you're saved by God. That's a work of the Spirit. But there's a baptism of power as well. And when we receive the Spirit in that way, we are being inaugurated in a similar way to how Jesus was. It's, a, it's, it's like a coronation. Not only are you, do you have the identity that you belong to God, you're in the royal family, but now you've been given a crown to show that you have authority. That's an important way to look at it. In my life, I've been a Christian for many years, was in Jesus and I put my faith in him, I trust in him. But I'd never heard anyone talk about receiving power from the Spirit. What does that mean, to receive power from the Spirit? And I became hungry for that, became interested in that and responded for that and encountered God in a very profound way and began to see some supernatural things happening in my life. Christians I know that say, well, God doesn't heal today or God doesn't do supernatural things today. God doesn't do that stuff today. Um, uh, are saying that typically because they haven't seen it. And just because you haven't seen something doesn't mean it's not true. It's enough for us that God's word says it's true. To have faith, to say, God, give me power. I'm hungry for the power, just like Jesus received power. Because Jesus being, having the spirit descend on him wasn't about him becoming God's son. He's already God's son. It's about power to do the work that God called him to do, to do the good works, to go around, setting all those free who are oppressed by the devil. That's the work we're called to do, to shine the light in the darkness, that the, the dark forces in the world will flee, will run away, and that people can be free. You need power to do it. The third thing we see at the baptism of Jesus, we see the Father's voice is heard from heaven. The Father's voice is heard from heaven. So I think it's verse 11. If we want to go back to verse 11. Actually, you know what? It's not on there, but if you could go back earlier in the slides, if you could find verse 11 for me. I'm making them work harder here. 
Here it is. Thank you. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This, again, those scribes, those who studied the scripture, there was some anticipation for this, but really only afterwards did it become clear what's actually happening here. And this is actually kind of amusing to me that God is uh, doing it this way because the voice of God comes from heaven, okay? And um, what's funny is God is not saying anything new. He's quoting himself. Um, yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, I mean, imagine going around. I mean, maybe we should do that sometime. Like, oh, go around with a T-shirt with your own quote on it, you know. A great person once said this great thing, and it's me. Um, God's quoting himself. So um, this, is, this, this phrase here, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. This is a mashup of two parts of the Old Testament. So the first one um, is in Psalm 2. Thank you, Jones. Appreciate it. Psalm 2, verse 7, uh, where David writes, You are my son. Now, again, this is a messianic prediction about Jesus. David wrote it talking about his son Solomon. But in reading it now, we see clues in there that, oh, it actually meant something much bigger than that. It meant it's talking about God validating his son coming, his son as in the son of God, the divine one, the son, one of the same nature as God coming. And then the second part of it is, the other part of it is from Isaiah 49, verse 3, where it says, And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That is essentially paraphrased by God. It's the same structure when he says um, that, uh, whatever verse 11 said uh, before. So God is basically taking these two, the Father is taking these two parts of the Old Testament, mashing them together, speaking them over Jesus. And what's significant about this is that the nation of Israel, they heard in Exodus, they heard God speak over them that, that they were God's son. It's, it's actually the only time in the scripture where God, uh, God himself speaks it over somebody, other than this moment right here. That God speaks over the nation of Israel that they are his son. So, for these Jews, hearing this, hearing the voice from heaven coming, saying, he is my son, their minds would have gone back to, oh, that's what God said over us in Exodus when we were in the wilderness, when we were being freed from Egyptian slavery. That's what God said, I, you know, you're not slaves anymore, now you're, you're my children, essentially. But there's something different about this. This is the Father saying, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true Israel. He's the true son. Now, this is mind-blowing. What it means is, it means everything that God said and did about his people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, everything he did and said, Israel is reduced down into one life, into one person. Now, this is my son. And all those who came before Jesus, Abraham and all his descendants, find their fulfillment and identity in Jesus. Jesus doesn't get his identity from Abraham. It's the other way around. All the promises, all of the things that God has said about his people, it's now true of Jesus. Jesus, because they all failed. All the leaders failed. The whole nation, they all failed. But Jesus is the one that won't fail. This means salvation rests upon God himself. And all those that will come after Jesus, all those that would be following in the footsteps of Jesus, all find their identity 
all of us, looking forward to Jesus, looking back to Jesus, we all find our sonship and our identity and the fulfillment of all God's promises through our relationship and our connection with Jesus. This is why you get baptized. Because you're saying, I die, I'm buried in Jesus, I'm raised to life, out of death, in, in Jesus. And that when I die, I'll, it's not a shame, it's better, because I'll be with Jesus forever. This is wonderful. That's what it means to be unified with Jesus. What it, and what it truly means is this. If Jesus is king, and he's done this work, and this is how God sees Jesus, and therefore how God's, the only way that we can be seen is through Jesus this way to God. Because he's king, it means we bow down to him. It means we obey him. Because that's what you do with a king, right? I mean, I'm glad I don't, I don't live in an absolute monarchy. We're really glad about it. Because in, a, in an absolute monarchy or a totalitarian state, the guy at the top is the law. And if you've, so they can create the law. Whatever they say is the law. They are the greatest authority. And so if you go against them, if you say something against them or do something against them, meaning it or not meaning it by accident, whoosh, you're in great trouble. But this is the beauty, the fact that God has crowned his son as king of all things, that he seeks to glorify his son and not him. The father doesn't seek to glorify the father. The father seeks to glorify the son, make him the head of all things, the king of all things. It means we're invited. It means to obey Jesus is not about a submission that's just oppressive. It's a submission that says, come and dance with me. Come into the dance. This is how much God loves you that Jesus was willing to be identified as a sinner in baptism. Think about it. Jesus is perfect. He's righteous. He's come to sacrifice himself for sinners. He's come to take our place on the cross. He's come to do all of that. And to approach the baptism waters, to approach John the baptizer, to go into the Jordan, and for everybody there to, to question, well, if Jesus of his own accord, his own choice, is going into the, the baptism waters, doesn't that mean that he thinks he's a sinner? Do we understand the humility of Jesus? That people might think he thinks he's a sinner. He thinks he's just like us. He thinks he needs to repent just like us. Isn't this an act of repentance to be baptized by John? What humility but right after that amazing action of humility, being identified as sinners, I mean, that's how much he loves us. I mean, that's so rare, isn't it, for somebody to say, I'll take the blame. I'll, I'll, just, I'll let my reputation be tarnished so that you can have a good reputation. Who does that? Well, that's what Jesus does. That's because he came from the divine trinity, the divine triunity of people who perfectly love one another and are self-effacing. This is the work of Jesus. He was identified with sinners. And that the, the people might, might get the wrong idea that Jesus thinks he's a sinner. But in that amazing act of humility, what happened? As soon, as soon as that's done with, he's exalted. The heavens opened up. Actually, John, it tells us in Mark, Mark says Jesus saw, you know, the heavens opened up and the Spirit descend. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle John says that he also saw it happen. 
It wasn't just Jesus seeing it, but John and maybe, probably others saw this happen. It went from complete humiliation and humility to maximum exhortation as king. What does the scripture say, right? God uh, gives grace to uh, the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What about Nelson Mandela? And how does his story, how does it conclude and how does it relate to our message today? Nelson Mandela, he knew that achieving unity in South Africa would not be easy by any, any stretch of the imagination. The tensions were high. The work was fraught with um, mistrust and fear. A lot of hurt feelings. I mean, there'd been oppression, racism for so long. And Mandela knew that he had to convince the world that South Africa was ready to be brought together. And so he forgave his enemies. The very people who put him in prison, he lost 27 years of his life, mistreated. He chose to forgive them. I mean, I can only think it was his faith in Jesus that gave him the power to do that. He didn't talk about his faith a lot, but he definitely was clear that he did have faith in Christ. It was then four years later, he was released in 1990, so in 1994, four years later, Nelson Mandela was elected the first black president of South Africa. And he did something incredible at his inauguration. He stood before the nation and he did something so simple but so profound. He danced. He danced. It's called the Madiba Shuffle. And in this dance, what Mandela communicated to not just South Africa but to the whole world is that our nation can be saved. Our nation can be saved. This monumental victory, this ch change of events, this salvation that came, this image of salvation that came intersects with Jesus, intersects with the, the person, the work, and the ministry of Jesus. Both men chosen by God, both anointed to lead, both crowned by God to bring about salvation to their people. Nelson Mandela to bring about redemption and reconciliation for South Africa. Jesus chosen, crowned, anointed by the Father to bring about salvation for the whole world, for all of us. Just as God dances and he invited us into the dance, that's what Mandela was doing. He was dancing and he was saying to everyone, everyone, you can participate in the dance. You can come in, you can celebrate because forgiveness is real. What, a, what an example of faith, of hope, amazing leadership. What leadership? What justice? What reconciliation? I mean, we, we get moved by what Nelson Mandela did. He's considered to be one of the most universal examples of leadership. All people from all cultures look to him as part of the primary examples of leadership because of how he led. But then you look at Jesus and you realize Jesus forgave all his enemies. He forgave all of us when we didn't deserve it. You know, we don't want God. In our natural selves, we don't want God. We might have spiritual inclinations. We might think different things at different times, but we don't really want God because we want to be our own king. We want to rule our own lives. We want to control things ourselves. We want to call the shots we want to say how things are going to be. But when we realize he's the king, he's been crowned, 
and he died in my place, considered to be a sinner. He identified as a sinner for me. And if you'll repent and approach the baptism waters like Jesus, you can come into his kingdom, come into his family and know him. And if you're already in, you're already a Christian, ask yourself, is it the real Jesus that I'm following? Is it the real Jesus? Is it the Jesus in these pages? Or is it a Jesus, a fairy tale Jesus, a cartoony Jesus, a Jesus of my own imagination, the way I want Jesus to be? Or is it the actual Jesus? Sometimes we think we need a new word from God, but sometimes, actually most of the time, we need the eternal word from God, the word that's already been spoken, the word that we need to receive. You know what the word God says over you today? You're my child and I'm pleased. I am well pleased. Say, how could that be true? Well, you put your faith in Jesus. And when you're in Jesus, that's how it's true because that's how God looks at his son. 